welcome to this week's Khaki Malarkey. Today we are joined by Lindsay Powell, originally from Wales, but is joining us today in the United States. With a day job as a chief marketing officer, Lindsay has always come back to Roman history, having written books on ancient Roman history, Eager for Glory and Marcus Agrippia, which we'll be talking about today. Now, he's also the news editor and columnist for the acclaimed Ancient Warfare magazine, alongside being a member of the Archaeological Institute of America and the Classic Association of Great Britain. Thank you for joining us today, Lindsay. How are you? I'm great. Thank you, as we would say here. <laughs> How are you all doing, as we'd say in Texas? How are you all doing? We're doing great, thank oh, we're you. Good over here. Yeah, we're getting by. It's great to have good. you on. So to start with, first of all, we ask all of our guests to summarise their book in 30 seconds. Do you think you can hack it? The famous elevator speech, as we tell all our startups to do. Um, it's the story really <laughs> about loyalty and, and, and uh, fidelity to a man. So right-hand man helps uh, a relatively unknown uh, become the, the greatest man in the Roman world. And uh, the question is, why did he do it? I love that. Wonderful. Why, Good. why did he? Well, I, I hope we're going to find out without giving away too much because we want our listeners to buy the book. Buy but... the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, well, let's jump straight into this. Within the book, I think it's really clear that Marcus had one hell of a career. But let's kind of bring it back to the beginning when he was Emperor Augustus's deputy. What exactly was his role here? Well, you know, I, I think what we, we need to go back is right back to the context of this. And we're, we're talking about sort of uh, 63 BC when, when Marcus Agrippa is born, probably in the same year as his friend who will become known as the Emperor Augustus. So this man's whole world experience is, is fighting, right? I mean, it's like, you know, you're brought up in a civil war and then you, in your teens, you start, all the news you hear is about wars and fighting. Um, so so it, it, it's a really uh, tough place to grow up in. And, and, and I think the important thing is to remember is that when he is growing up and his friend that he, in his early years, uh, we don't know the circumstances why, why Marcus Agrippa met, uh, the guy who would become Augustus. Will, will, he's called Octavian. I prefer to call him Imperator Caesar because that's what he called himself, but it gets confusing. So I love Octavian. the names in this period. They are just all fantastic, aren't they, to say? Octavian, well, great name. Well, there, there's a story behind that, but I was going to make <laughs> the point that uh, what, you've got to understand that, that, that these guys had no idea what faced them. Right? Mm. It's very easy with the benefit of 2,000 years or even you know, when, you, when you're in those days, uh, a decade or two after they've died, to be able to see a sort of shape to a, a life story. Mm. And it, they don't see it that way, right? Um, the, the young man who will become Augustus has no idea what he wants to do other than to avenge the death of his adopted father. And this is the funny thing. So the Octavian, which is actually the Octavianus, and the Janus is actually the yeah. Latin end, which indicates an adoption by somebody. Oh, right? okay. So his, 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 I didn't know that. So, so, yes, so his, his, his birth name is Caius Octavius Turinus. And Octavius is, is the family name. When he is adopted by Julius Caesar through the will, he then, it's Octavianus. Yeah. Right? So every time oh. you see a Roman name which ends in I-A-N, it, it's missing the U-S at the end, and that tells you he was adopted by someone. Amazing. Okay, that's really so adoption, adoption. Adoption is a very well-practiced thing in Roman uh, life. It's, it's a way to extend families. If you are yeah. a father um, with a big estate and you have no kids, or in fact, you've fallen out with the kids and you, you want to give your estate to somebody else, this is the way you do the it. The current kids weren't cutting it, see? <laughs> <laughs> well, and there was a lot of this. There were, there were there several examples of this sort of thing. Uh, Romans were very pragmatic about family. And, and, yeah. and the whole fascinating story, when you look into the, the life story of Marcus Agrippa particularly, is, is, is how his family becomes 
Augustus's family and they become building blocks in a very complicated family wall, if I could mix all yeah. sorts of metaphors there. Um, and in <laughs> fact, when you look through the family life, life tree of the imperial family, you'll be surprised how many times there is a daughter or granddaughter of Marcus Agrippa in their family. Yeah. Or right. there is a son or a grandson of, the, of these people. So, so really, when you look at this whole, what's called the Julio-Claudian family, Marcus Agrippa is an extraordinarily strong root and branch in this whole story. Um, and, and none of this is known. So, so going back to what I was trying to explain here is that nobody knows any of this. Um, and if you were to stop uh, Marcus Agrippa in his teens, you know, what are you going to be when you grow up? He probably thinks I'm probably going to be a soldier because yeah. wars are going on. And it turns out in all the stories that we, we know of him, all they, they tell us really, they don't, they don't tell us when he was born, where he was born. They just tell us that he had a very troubled sort of childhood. Uh, we don't know what that means. We don't know whether it was, um, you know, just bad upbringing, he got abused, or we don't know whether, um, you know, he uh, you know, just was, was a bad student. We don't know. Um, but what's very clear is at some point in his teenage years, he becomes the friend of this man we what I was talking about, Octavian, that becomes Augustus. Yeah. Um, and they become lifelong friends. And this is the essence of the story of the man. And it's, I don't find any really uh, close parallels in history. It's an extraordinary buddy relationship um and 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 i i think there was something very emotional in it i'm absolutely not sexual but but very emotional in a sort of yeah um uh a shared life experiences shared vision of the world total trust and those sorts of things and there's all many examples in the life one he does that but i think like an ancient romance <laughs> yeah, I guess like the Ant and Deck of the Roman Empire. <laughs> yeah, kind of could you know? It's it's really interesting because the one thing that ancient sources don't really delve into is the sort of psychology of the people. Mm. Um, and 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 it's interesting. Where I'm writing a book right now about Tiberius, uh, who was the successor of Augustus, and and uh, he is quite notorious. And one thing that people try to understand, why, why was he notorious? And, and that's a whole separate conversation. But somebody was a psychologist tried to do a psychological assessment of this man. And the problem with that is, is you're using third and fourth party do documents yeah, that's quite tricky. to try and make sense of all this, right? It's a bit yeah. like taking Reader's Digest and Wikipedia and a few other things. And there's a, hey, do a psychological <laughs> study of the queen, you know, um, and, and you, you'd end up with some very, very strange uh, yeah. insights in that way. But, so what you're faced with is trying to, to, so rather than just looking at the person in terms of dates in a chronology and events, mm -hmm. and you try to inhabit the soul of the person, which is yeah. what I try mm -hmm. to do when I'm writing, it really comes to a point when, and I'll give you an example. I, I wrote on Twitter some years ago when I finished this book, um, I've just written the scene where Marcus Agrippa dies and I feel suddenly so empty. Mm. It, it, it's effective. And yeah. Tom Holland, the, the, the famous uh, Roman historian, BBC <laughs> guy, um, right. yeah. so, yes, we have James I, I on here. Yeah, I, I, I know. Come on here as well. Can you put, yeah. can you put us in contact? <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, he actually said, "Yes, I know that how that feels." And I think what that tells you is that when you when you spent like I spent like two years of my life with this man. Yeah. Um, you do feel such a personal attachment to the people that you study, don't you? It's yeah. crazy. Well, you do, and, and 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 some people sort of say, "Well, don't you sort of fall in love with your subject?" And to some degree, I think you do, and you almost have to because mm. why else would you do it? Oh, yeah. On the other hand, I was listening to a biography. Um, it was, I think, the Rise of the Nazis or something or about somebody who was writing a book about either Goebbels or Hitler, and they said, "Did you ever lo love the character?" They said, "Absolutely not. Mm. Absolutely not." And I have the joy of writing people who I actually get to like very much. Um, so, so it's, you know, that, that's a very positive life. For me. And, and of all the people in the ancient world, I think Marcus Agrippa absolutely stands up to his own. And, and I wanted to fix something which I thought was a really, really 
uh, enormous wrong, which is he's basically been forgotten. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, and I want to try and understand, well, why did he get forgotten? And I think mm. it was partly because he sort of designed it that way. Mm. That's very interesting. So did he, did he not ever want to be emperor then? He had no grand... Well, that's, that's okay. So let's, let's understand what that means. Um, mm. First of all, the, the, at this point in time, emperor is imperator. And all that means is commander. That's all it means. Okay. It's a military title, it's commander. And okay. specifically, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a, an award. It's a, it's a recognition that victorious Roman citizens, soldiers, and you've got to remember that the Roman army at this time is made up of ordinary citizens, right? You're called together and they're picked and they form up in units and off they go and they march to fight wars, right? Yeah. Uh, and increasingly, private armies like people like Julius Caesar pay to recruit their own troops and they swear loyalty to that commander. When that commander brings them victory on the battlefield, the men, it, do you remember the scene in Gladiator where they go, Roma Victor? Yeah. Which, by the way, is wrong. <laughs> it, should be, it should be Roma Victrix. But that's another thing. <laughs> well, that, that bit when they do Roma Victor is really an acclamation. And what they yeah. should really be saying is not Roma Victrix, but actually Imperator, which is to oh. acclaim, shout the name of the commander, in this case, Marcus Aurelius. And the Roman chief would, would celebrate this on monuments and he'd actually put his name like Marcus Antonius Imperator. So there are coins with Marcus Antonius Imp. And what was really interesting was that um, in around about the middle thirties, the young Octavian, who was not yet Augustus, decided to do something really cheeky. He took the name Imperator and made it his first name. He did something nobody else had done before. Yeah. So what he decided to describe himself was instead of I've, I've won lots of battles and look, my troops celebrated this by calling me Imperator. I actually call myself by my first name, Commander. Yeah. And this was, this was really in your face kind of cheeky stuff. Yeah. And it stuck. And every man of importance followed that. So what you have to understand is that there's no understanding of Emperor as being this grand poobah with lots of rich palaces and so right. It's not like that. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, very, it's very much like the commander in chief. And, and it, it, it's a real, more like a street ball, brawl because other, other generals who are commanders can equally also call themselves, if they're acclaimed, imperator. So there are lots of this appearing coins. Even Brutus, for example, I think there's a coin which says Brutus Imperator because his troops acclaim him for being a great commander, which arguably he wasn't. But, so, what I want, so what I'm saying yeah. again, I'm trying to readjust and recalibrate here, which is oh. in that time, there was no such thing as emperor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, what Julius Caesar had done and what got him into a whole heck of a lot of trouble was the fact he wanted to become something really perilously close to being a king, a rex. And when he was assassinated, he had been declared back in February, the month before he was to be killed, as you remember, in March, yeah. the Ides of March. Um, he had been declared dictator perpetua, which means perpetual unending dictator. Dictator was supposed to be an emergency power. When, when things were going to hell in a handbasket, and the Roman state needed everybody to rally around and fight the enemy. They picked one guy and said, you are a dictator for six months. Get us out of this trouble. And famous ones like Cincinnatus comes to mind. Mm. So Julius Caesar had been, been called this and ultimately became the permanent dictator. And this is why he was assassinated, because a lot of people... Uh, in the aristocracy like that. decided that that wasn't that wasn't acceptable okay so we know that the last thing that augustus would have had in mind would have been to call himself a dictator because he'd got his grand uncle his great uncle in real trouble like killed him trouble mm. um so so what you end up with is, is that he's trying to make himself a prominent figure within a very competitive uh, roman society he it takes this name imperator which simply means commander and nobody yet knows what an emperor is because it doesn't exist at this point. Yeah. It's just literally one strong man trying to fight another strong man. 
and Marcus Agrippa allies himself at a very young age to the up and coming. He's only 90, think about this. When Julius Caesar is, is killed on the Ides of March, young Octavian is only 19. Wow. <laughs> right? So you look at this and say, what were you doing when you were 19? Or was it college, obviously, oh. bumming around, whatever he was doing. Well, this guy was, you have to wonder what he was thinking because he, he learns that he is the, uh, the primary beneficiary of Julius Caesar's will, which means he inherits all his money and all his estates. And the, but his name, he gets his name. So instead of being Caius Octavius Turinus, he becomes Caius Julius Caesar. Uh, what, a, mm. what a big brand name that comes. Mm, so I, yeah. I, I do a lot about branding. Branding, I mean, <laughs> talk about Caesar being a brand name, right? The perfect uh, but, but marketing it's a that, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's very interesting because coins start coming out with, with uh, you know, all sorts of things to do with um, uh, Caesar affiliation. So there's one coin which has, a, which has this comet, right? And there's a point at which... Um, several months, I think, after Julius Caesar, that a comet shines in the sky, right? And to, mm. to Romans, that's very, very spooky. That means, you know, there's heralds the death of kings, or it's a, maybe transformation of a man into a god. Julius Caesar becomes a god. So mm. guess what this means? This means <laughs> now that this means that the man that we call Augustus is now the son of God. So what you'll see, he now, he, he makes Julius Caesar a god, and by virtue of being his adopted son, he calls himself D.V. Filius, Right. So now he's yeah, son yeah, of yeah. God. So he's, wow. he is now Commander Caesar, son of God. How about that for a name? Um, and, and as my friend Carl Galinsky, uh, now retired from UT, said, it's very hard to argue with the son of God. Yeah, um, <laughs> I can imagine, definitely. <laughs> that is very the true. power so, your dad would have. <laughs> well, you know, but so, so what you're seeing is an extraordinary intellect. I mean, this, this 19, no, 20, 21 year old is thinking this game of political chess, military chess. Yeah. And one of the guys that's with him all in, lock in lockstep is this Marcus Agrippa. And I think to some degree, he was the brains behind this. So your question to me was, did he ever want to be emperor? No. Um, there's all the evidence all the way through his life that um, he didn't ever want to be a number one. So if you think about emperor as being the chief guy, the commander in chief, I don't think there's any evidence. The only, the only thing we do know around about this time is that um, the, 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 the legal heir of Julius Caesar is out to avenge his death. He wants to hunt down every single one of the assassins and hold them to account. And what's really interesting is that one of the first things that Marcus Agrippa does, he is put in, in charge of the trial as the, as the lead prosecutor against Caius Cassius Longinus, who was the, you remember, which is Cassius, right? In yeah. famous Shakespeare play. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, so he actually prosecutes and of course he wins the case. Well, you know, quite good if you're only about 20 and you win your first case in court against like the lead conspirator mm. of Julius Caesar. So, so what you see is that these two young men are sort of feeling their way into the future. And that, that the only thing that's driving them is we've got to hunt them down. Brutus, Cassius, Des or all the other famous people you remember from the Shakespeare play. And the amazing thing is, uh, it's a hard job. <laughs> it's not just simply a case of let's go chasing <laughs> after them because there are other people in the way, right? Yeah. And they end, up by, they end up by going to a famous uh, site in Greece called Pharsalus. There are two battles and in the end, uh, Cassius and Brutus kill themselves. And what emerges out of that is that uh, Marcus Antonius becomes a really prominent figure. Um, because in fact he's he's probably the more able soldier between the three of those, mm. and these two young now twenty somethings. Um, and the, the funny thing about this, the story about the Battle of Salus, in which um, we get to find out that the young Octavian, in fact, is a bit of a, a bit of a weakling with the, with his health. He always seems to get uh, sick when it comes to fighting battles, and he has to retire back to his oh. tent. And there's a scene when Marcus Agrippa is nursing him 
back to health. So in fact, um, the, the people sort of like take the mickey out of, uh, of, of Octavian because he's a weak, weak guy in that regard. But he's a brilliant and an intellect and he knows how to pick great commanders. But always beside him is this man called yeah. Marcus. Wow. So I mean, we've, we've touched on it um, just now about obviously Julius Caesar being assassinated uh, mm. in March. It was 44 BC. Yep. What was, um, you talk about Marcus's role in placing the new emperor. Uh, what is the kind of context surrounding this? Can you tell us and our listeners some more about this? Well, I, I think, uh, again, the, the, the context is they, they really are feeling their way forward. And uh, what, what they know is they've got to eliminate and call to account the assassins. But in the meantime, they've got to establish the rights and credentials of um, of Octavian, stroke right. Augustus, in, in all of this. Mm. And the guy standing in the way of it all is Marcus Antonius, famous Mark Antony of Cleopatra fame. And the, the, the issue there seems to be that Mark Antony probably thought that it was actually his right to be the chief honcho in, in Rome at that time. Yeah. And uh, basically stands in the way of preventing the young heir of Julius Caesar's estate from, from doing so. And it really is, what, what's interesting is that, um, the degree to which Marcus Antonius humiliates those two young men, like make, making them wait in the lobby, in the foyer, all day to have an appointment with him um, because they want to discuss the will, because uh, Mark Antony looks in the will, um, and he won't let them have the title, he won't let them have the money. And in the end, what happens is, is that uh, the two young men basically, oh, screw this, they actually go all the way down to Capua, which is yeah. uh, not very far away from Pompeii, and they raise an army of veteran soldiers that were Julius Caesar's, because you've got to remember at this point, this Octavian is now the heir and he's got the name. Yeah. He's got the yeah. name, I am the, I am the, the, I am the son yeah. of Julius Caesar. And uh, the men flock to him. They, they say, oh, of wow. course, we will stand by Caesar because by this time, these, these legions were in private armies. Mm -hmm. And um, what, what's, what's interesting is as, as this thing begins to snowball, the, um, the, the other man, famous man at this time is, is a man called Cicero. You probably know him, he's the, the orator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, who uh, always claimed in 63 BC, ironically, the year that uh, Octavian and uh, Marcus Agrippa were probably born. Um, he, he, he basically says, you know, we, we, will, we will let him think he's kind of in charge and then we'll just bring him down. What they wanted him was his army. And um, Octavian's no fool and basically says, well, I want to be consul, which is like one of the two yeah. most important roles. And in the end, they kind of give him lip service. So he, he literally fast tracks all the political promotions all the way to get to this point. So by in his 20s, 21 year old, he's, he's already the, one of the most important uh, men. And so what you, what, what you see is this really clever intellect and this man by his side that and, and, and more and more and more what you see in the, in the story is that Marcus Agrippa is the man who does the work. He's the fixer. Right. right. So, 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 so you've got the man called Caesar now, Imperator Caesar, who is the figurehead, and it's Agrippa that kind of going around getting stuff together, yeah. beginning to start to fight the battles and what have you. And and, and in none of this do you get the impression that uh, Agrippa really wants the power for himself. And, and and this is why I started the conversation by saying we're not quite sure where it all started. What what was right. what was his personal backstory? And and I have a hunch, and it's only a hunch. That, that, that it was this, the feeling that this, this, this man, young man at that time, had just picked him, you're going to be my best friend forever, my BFF, and we're, we're going to go through this, wherever this adventure takes us. And this amazing sort of loyalty um, meant that Agrippa never had to be the man in charge. First of all, he would never have been accepted because the aristocrats looked down on him all the way through his life. It's a sad story that whatever great stuff Agrippa does, the really important aristocracy went, you know. Why? Um, 
Why did they look well, bad? Well, well, there we go. See, there, there's another theme in the book. Uh, why? Um, so the Senate at this time is is made up of uh, a, a, a social class patricians who are really there because they've got money and reputation and because their grandfather and their great-grandfather were, were consuls. Remember, remember yeah. I mentioned that. Mm -hmm. And they've had ranks and they've had all of these important jobs in the state. But the point is that they really, it's really a talking shop. It's a, it's a, it's a body which approves legislation or proposes legislation which then goes to be voted by the people in the people's assemblies, ironically outside the building or on the campus Martius. And the, um, the people look down at him because he's what's called a novus homo. And a new man, that's what that means, is somebody that's the first of his line. Like, you know, I have nobody right. important in my family. Okay. I'm oh. the first one. I'm a novice homo. And guess who was also a novice homo? Cicero was uh, also one of those. Yeah. Uh, oh, several okay. other people. Some, and the aristocracy turned their nose up at those people. They forgot, of course, that way back in their own history, there was somebody who was the same. Yeah. But it didn't matter because, well, I've, I've got five, five consuls and six uh, proconsuls and so on. And, and I've got a big name chest thump uh, thump chest but but Agrippa <laughs> had none like, of that uh, but what I think sorry uh, it's uh, more uh, like they were looking down on him because he didn't have this status and the kind of background behind him that the others did in a way then I, I think that's the core of it and there's another mm. thing also was that because of the things that he did and the manner in which he did it the Romans were great ones for following these ideas of uh citizenship and courage in the face of battle um, the, the word virtue is actually a corruption of the Latin word virtus, which we, we, we translate as courage, but it's really manliness. And what it means is if you're in the middle of the battle and you know the enemy is charging at you, you hold your ground with your sword drawn and you tackle it. You don't turn around and run. That's not manly, right? So, okay. so this whole idea that, 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 that the Roman citizen defends his homeland, stands for family values, um, is fair and loyal at all. I mean, it, these are really kind of trite values, but the Romans really, really stand by them. And guess who embodied them per, par excellence? One man called Marcus Agrippa. Yeah. So you've got, the, you've got these things in the man that people despise. And I think the more he proved himself, the more they despised him. I think, you know, I think it may well just be pure old jealousy. That you, <laughs> might, you might've got something there. Um, and the great thing is, the more they did that, I think the more that Octavian stroke Augustus stood by him. He's my man. He's yours. <laughs> um, and the result is that all through their life, they're kind of like, you know, they, they're in lockstep. Um, so so I, I think that, that, that's great. Oh, that's lovely. So, I love this friendship. I'm, I, this is, I want to know everything about these two friends. <laughs> well, um, find it in the book. Don't, no more spoilers. <laughs> People will buy the book. <laughs> I think the way to think of it is simply that everything he does in his deeds demonstrates he can be absolutely trusted. And it's really bizarre that um, after um, Julius Caesar is avenged and that the empire starts to split into two sections. So Marcus Antonius basically by, by the 30s is now shacked up with Cleopatra. He's kind mm. of the, the, the Roman world is basically divided into, a, into an east and west. And there's a third yeah. man in this group called Lepidus who doesn't get many mentions, but effectively what had happened was recognizing that the Roman world was in a, in a bit of a mess. Uh, three men came together called the Triumvirate and it was uh, Octavian, who will become Augustus, uh, Mark Anto Marcus Antonius, and this guy called uh, Lepidus. And they form what's basically a commission of three men, Triwiri, tri uh, a triumvirate. And their job is basically to stabilize and return the Roman state back to the Roman people, you know, because it's been in a terrible mess. And, uh, you know, that, that's what they do. The, the Romans often will set up this committee. We, we call it committee, they yeah. call it commission. 
uh, of things and you'll find them in threes and sevens and fifteens and um, they're elected and they serve like six months or a year or two years and they get the job done and then they go back into their uh, private lives and so on. So um, increasingly what happens is, is this rivalry strikes up between the two and, and, and Marcus Agrippa is the man that sorts stuff out. You know, he, 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 he gets things done. And as Augustus or uh, Octavian is moving around, he can afford to leave his best friend where he is because he knows, yeah, he knows nothing's well. going to go wrong. Nothing's oh, going to go wrong. Now, somebody well. else might have said, hey, I'm on my own. I'm in charge the now. Party. Right? Right. Yeah. Or, or, or power. Um, yeah. Or power party. So, so, but, but, but Agrippa never did that. Never, ever, ever did that. It, 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 it's, it's remarkable. So I guess that's why he must have obviously trusted him as a military leader as well then and kind of thought of uh, Marcus so highly. So in terms of Marcus being this military leader, what would you say is some of his like kind of defining moments of his career? I mean, surely when I had a brief look at the book, it has to be his role in defeating, well, eliminating Marcus Antonius and Queen Cleopatra. Or... That's, certainly the that, that's certainly the highlight, but, but again, to, to put them in context, you've got to remember that um, these guys are self-taught, right? Ooh, there's no, right. there's no Sandhurst or um, Annapolis that you can go to to become an <laughs> army officer. Everybody's self-taught. You read it in books, you talk to people who are fighters, or you sit mm. around a dinner table and say, can you tell me your story, young old Cochran? <laughs> Um, or in the case of uh, in the case of young Octavian, he would have sat around the table with Julius Caesar and heard the war stories of the Gallic War and so on, mm. uh, and met all of his generals. And and the key thing to understand is that Augustus. I wrote a book about this, Augustus at, at War, which is kind of like a tongue in cheek because Augustus was a terrible commander. He was absolutely awful. But the great thing that he actually was able to do was he spotted great commanders in other people. And the, and right. the trick about that is to. I'm not going to lead the war. I know I'm bad at it. I'm going to find really good people who are. The difference with Julius Caesar and other people like that, like Hannibal, was this an underboss, I'm going to lead from the front. Mm. And that's good, but you put yourself at great risk. And yeah. uh, the problem with it also is that you really, it's all about you. Yeah. What, 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 what uh, Octavian and Agrippa were about was really the mission. Yeah. Getting right. the job done. And, um, and you can still take the kudos for it, you can still take the glory, and that was the, the, the crux of the relationship. So, so they're both self-taught. Um, that they, Remember I told you they marched all the way to Capua and they raised an army. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so the first thing they do is they, they have to get men. I mean, it's, it's a really hard sell. They have to stand up in the forum and they have to say, you know, aggrieved man, I want to take my, what's right for me. Who's with me? Yeah chest of money i'm gonna pay you chest of money pay pay <laughs> that was probably uh, the bigger motivator in that wasn't it <laughs> well you know never underestimate the power of money and, and the great thing about uh, the, to understand the way that octavian works he's debt financed right so when mm -hmm. he goes basically to the battle of actium he's he's basically broke um he it, what he's doing is promising all his backers that mm. what i've won i will be able to pay you an awful lot of money but you've got to back me you've got to pay me first the difference is Marcus Antonius raids everybody, right? He goes around, robs everybody. He yeah. goes to cities in, in, in Greece and basically either um, press gangs them or whatever and says, yeah, I need your money, I need your, and I need your men, off you come, right? So two different ways of doing it. And in yeah. fact, the, win, the one that wins is the one who's debt finance, right? as it turns out. He's got 100,000 troops or something rather on the promise that at the end of it, you'll get all these riches, get land and money, and you'll be, oh, you'll be really way ahead. So he has to win. He's got no choice. He has to win because the yeah. prospect of losing is just too, too bad. What he also knows is where all the money is. Well, we say why do uh, robbers rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Well, yeah. the reason why they go to war partly against Cleopatra is because that's where the gold is. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Right? So the richest country in the world at that time is Egypt. And um, somewhat foolishly, if you say that 
uh, Cleopatra ends up by backing Marcus Antonius. Interestingly enough, she doesn't provide him an army, but she provides him the money for him to go and build an army. So she was smart that way. She wouldn't actually give him <laughs> troops. She needed them as well. Um, and it, it comes to a head famously at the Battle of Actium. So let's, let's rewind the text. So I said that these people are self-taught. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what's fascinating is that in the 30s, uh, Octavian and Agrippa are fighting against one of the sons of a conspirator. Uh, actually, what kind of guy who allied with a conspirator, um, whose name was Sextus Pompeius. And Sextus Pompeius was acting like a pirate uh, based in Sicily in North Africa. He would, he would intercept the ships coming from North Africa and Sicily bearing grain, which were being shipped off to Rome. You remember a large number of people in Rome were unemployed. Mm -hmm. um, Julius Caesar, I think, was instrumental in introducing a free corn dole, mm. uh, which meant that, um, you know, if you were unemployed, at least you'd get your bread every week. You know, they'd give you a measure of corn and you could go yeah. and take it to a bakery. In the day. So you'd, at least, you'd never go hungry. Um, if someone comes along and tries and cuts that supply chain off, you're in trouble. Mm. Uh, it's a bit like your unemployment check suddenly comes to, and you know, what are you going to do? Yeah. You, you create mm -hmm. a right, I need my check. So Sexus Pompeius goes straight for the jugular. What, uh, what Agrippa does is to build a fleet from scratch, from nothing, uh, and train the Navy to do this. And what's brilliant about it is that he's never fought a naval battle, so he doesn't really have any idea how to do this. But you see a logic that so he, he must have in his head, or he must, he must go to talk to experts. What would you do? And the model they come up with, they say, okay, every city on the west coast of Italy will provide us the hulls of ships. They will all be sent to a, a harbor, a port we're going to build. We're going to build a port. They build a port uh, at Mycenaeum. Uh, which is off the Bay of Naples, and uh, what they do is they take a natural bay with a lake behind it, they cut a, a, get, a, a, a ditch through the middle to connect them, they build a concrete harbour. If you go to Google Images, the satellite map, you can actually still see the outline of this buried under the water. Uh, it's amazing to, to sort of see this. It's actually called the Portus Julius, and interesting enough, it's called Portus Julius. Why? Because Agrippa named it after the adopted family of his best friend. The other oh. called things Julian or Augustine. Um, just to, again, you sort of, why do you do that? So lovely. <laughs> yeah. So, so what, what, what you have to imagine is, is that these, these holes of ships are being transported down the coast within it. There's basically just the outlines of boats. And they train the crews on benches, right? They, they free slaves and they get people who want to volunteer. And they literally say, okay, you're in groups of 50 now. Man these banks, right? Hold the, all this and pull, right? Pull, no, in unison, pull. And when they've got to standard, they kit out the ships and they put these people in the ships. Uh, Agrippa then goes through, so like a, a process saying, I need to build the best ships I possibly can. They put towers on them and they, they develop this special weapon, which is a hook with a chain on it. So when they fire the catapult, it then grabs the ship and they can wheel it in like a tractor beam, kind of like, uh, as like a chain tractor beam. So you can see this incredible um, inventor part of, of, of yeah. his personality here. And he fights two uh, naval battles uh, Meli and Naulochus in, in 36 and wins them amazingly, beating a guy who is a much more able uh, admiral, which is Sextus Pompeius, yeah. uh, which, is, which is amazing. In 31 BC, just five years later, he takes everything he's learned from those battles, including making smaller ships, not big ships, hmm. and then goes on to defeat Marcus Antonius and Cleopatra in a battle that really was ridiculous. You, you, you think, how on earth did he win that? He had no particular uh, advantage. In fact, his ships were smaller than uh, the, the other sides. But he used tactics and strategy. And, I was going to say, uh, do you think small ships was for obviously more agile, more speedy? Well, that seems to be the logic. I mean, yeah. the, the original logic mm. was to build these okay. huge, big warships and just basically just smash the small ones. But the trouble yeah. is, they're very hard to manoeuvre. 
yeah and so if you ever fall in a position it's when your ages get out of it because like you said you can't maneuver them so yeah but what's interesting also yeah, is that yeah. um the battle of actium which is part of the, the bigger actium campaign mm. um basically it's a standoff for the first six months so um what, what happens is is that uh marcus antonius sets himself up with Cleopatra in a camp on, on the south bay of the bay of uh, gomaros which is on the west coast of greece which is a pretty dumb thing to do because it's marshy and it's got lots of mosquitoes and people get sick pretty quickly. Mm. And the fresh waters on the other side, where, by the way, Marcus, and, uh, Marcus Agrippa and Octavian set their camp up, they have all the fresh water there. Yeah. Well, before uh, Octavian arrives, um, he runs a campaign up and down. He sort of sails his little boats, his little warships, up and down the coast, harassing, doing exactly what Sextus Pompeius did, and just causing havoc and mayhem up and down the coast. So he's actually the, the guerrilla fighter, Che Guevara of the Roman world. Um, and finally, when it comes to the back, he's, he's, he's mapped out the, the, the terrain so well, he knows that around about midday, a wind starts blowing in uh, from, I think it's the, the, the northwest, and he uses that to his advantage. And, and the famous Battle of Actium was one where it was partly trickery. So th they, they sit there for months trying to provoke the other side to the battle, and they never respond. And then finally, they decide, we're actually going to fight. And it's it, it's it's not quite clear as to whether Cleopatra's really. We need to get back to Egypt, but we just need to get out of Dodge. Yeah. And that's one particular. Bit. The other aspect is no, they really wanted to win it. So that there's that. It's not clear from the stories which which they with. But either way, um, that they, they arrange their forces a bit like the, the the two great big arcs. And as the uh, the fleet from Marcus Antonius and Cleopatra begins to move forward, Agrippa pulls his back. His men actually row backwards. Mm -hmm. So they open up gaps and, and there comes a point when this wind blows and then is able to propel the ships forward. So they use the natural forces. That, and in the meantime, they can act maneuver the big ships of Cleopatra, who then ultimately makes an escape, makes a run for it. And, and unbelievably, when Cleopatra's ship is sailing and they're big, beautiful ships with blue sails and lots of gold and spectacular stuff, I mean, really in your, in your face, spilling mm. the ships. Um, what, uh, what Marcus Antonius does, he abandons his ship and jumps on hers. So he literally quits the battle, leaving all his men to fight the battle. And you can imagine how that is. And the trick is that Marcus Agrippa doesn't go chasing after them. He says, we're here to finish the job yeah. and completely destroys the fleet. So by yeah. the dawn of the next morning, they've, they've completely taken all of the army and so on. And they chase him all the way to, to Greece finally. And then he gets his, and Octavian finally gets his hand on the gold and then pays the people he'd promised all the money to. So wow. his debt financing, he paid all the debts and then some. He became the richest man in the world. Wow. He's just incredible. <laughs> and you can see why um, Augustus trusted him. Brilliant. Well, you've got to remember that Agrippa's also getting pretty handily rich out of this whole thing as well. Um, so he gets a share of the spoils. And, uh, you know, it, it's very clear that when he's uh, in his middle ages, in his 40s, he's land and estates and money. And that's why he can afford to build all these big, big buildings, because he could just say, I'll write a check. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Pantheon, yeah, we'll have one of those. Septuagint, <laughs> we'll have one of those. Um, but, but Landwork, yeah, well, art, let's buy some. Um, but it's, it's, it's the way he does it, which is fascinating. That, so that typically a lot of uh, Romans love to show their wealth, right? Yeah. A lot of the time they would actually keep it at home and you have to go and see it by invitation. And that's part of their way of showing how great they were. <laughs> Other people like Marcus Agrippa actually say, no, I'm going to make it available to the public. So interestingly enough, when, when Marcus Antonius in his early years after the assassination of Julius Caesar started to confiscate artworks from the people that they killed off and he put them in his house. And Agrippa's policy was, no, 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 this is public work, public, right? That means people get to see it. So there was a huge big uh, space just to um, uh, the, the, the north part of Rome 
which is called the Campus Martius, the Fields of Mars, which really at that point was a bit of an encamped, like a Hampton Heath type thing, you know, there's a vast sprawling mm. area which people you put, put the cows and sheep on. Yeah. And they decided, this is brilliant, we're going to make this into a public park. And they, they transformed it into a spectacular um, capability brown type affair with uh, wonderful manicured things and pathways and things. And they built porticos and they put this art that they'd collected. And it became a new thing that Romans did. They had artificial lakes, they had all sorts of water effects and all that. And you would go, like you do in London, you see all those big, wonderful parks, those famous Diana monument, you know, with all the water. Mm, yeah. um, and you would make that. You'd, you'd actually encourage Romans to go out and have a walk around the park. They'd never done that sort of thing. Marcus Agrippa invents one of the very first huge mega bathhouses. Um, and, 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 and it's just amazing how, where did these ideas come from? I have no idea. Uh, he, he just reads a lot. He just says, I've got a great idea. Why don't we do this? Yeah. Um, and the most famous building in the world, other than the Colosseum, of course, is the Pantheon. And whose name is on that building? Marcus Griffiths. Yeah, you can see it at the top, can't you? Yeah. And oh, by the way, that's not his building. It's Hadrian's building. <laughs> so why is his name on it? Well, the story is that uh, Hadrian was, uh, was very respectful of the people who built the buildings before he got there. Uh, and the, the pantheon that we know today is a repair job. Um, so it, after Marcus Agrippa took this, this big park with nothing in it and built the first, first pantheon, and we think it was a pantheon, not pantheon, pantheon. Um, we think it was a circular building. We don't know if it had a roof. We don't know anything about it because it's really hard to work out from the foundations. But it seems to have been an impressive building. And it was, it was, it was not a temple. It was originally a building which seems to have had, uh, like the modern version that we have, uh, mm. Alcos, where there was a statue of him and there was a statue of, uh, of Augustus, because Augustus by 27 was called Augustus. And he was originally going to call it the Augustium, right? Which is to say, this is a building for you, my dear friend. <laughs> and Augustus said, no, 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 I, I love it, but no, can't do that. No, no, it, 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 it kind of makes me too much like a god and I'm not really... Yeah, that's too much, too much. Right? Well, the Romans would despise a living man as a god, that's the difference. So uh, they called it the Pantheon originally, and then it became Pantheon, the Greek word. And, and it does seem to have had maybe gods on the inside, but we don't know much about it. Yeah. Well, it burned down several times in the next 100 years. Right. And uh, various attempts were made to repair it. And ultimately, uh, Hadrian and uh, his architect, Apollodorus, uh, it, it, they just got their heads together and came up with this amazing idea for a free-supported uh, concrete dome which if you look at its plan, if you imagine a football and draw a football, um, it, yeah. and you can put, it's just, it's just this perfect sort of sphere, uh, geometry. And uh, I would imagine that if, if, if Agrippa had been able to see it go, damn, I wish I thought of that. <laughs> but the great ahead. thing was, is that Hadrian respected that the first building was, was done by, and he put the names. It's Marcus Agrippa, son of Lucius, consul three times made this. Um, and there are very few buildings that uh, yeah. that the Hadrian actually said, basically, I made this building because he, I, I, the, the book I've just finished is rich, literally about Hadrian and uh, Barkochva, who was a, a Jewish rebel that he fought. Yeah. And it's been fascinating to get into his head because he, yeah. was, he was really interesting. We can talk about him another time. But, um, uh, but, but Agrippa, for, for this part, was a man who had an extremely um, interesting aspect of his personality, which was, I, I think, it was showy in a very passive-aggressive way. Okay. So, so, I love him. <laughs> well, it's funny. So, so for example, um, when I think he wins the battles of Milanilochus and then ultimately the battle at Actium, he is given a special crown. Right? Romans have to work, work, wear their battle honours either as medals on their chests or in the case of crowns. There are all sorts of different crowns. There were like uh, laurel wreaths and olive uh, leaves, uh, leaves and oak leaves and also. Well, they made one for him which actually had the prows of ships on. 
right? Aww. And it also had uh, like a castle crown. So he had this, this crown made and he was allowed to wear it. Now, you think about it, Romans don't like kings, no. but you've got this, this guy around in, in, in public ceremonies stands out. Oh, that's Marcus Agrippa, the guy with the crowns on. Um, the other thing he also gives him is a special flag to go on the back of his transport, his, his, his barge. Yeah. So wherever he's just sailing around the road, he gets this sea blue flag. Yeah. It's a bit like, how can I say, um, he doesn't make a big, big thing about his arrival, but you still know he's there. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and it, 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 as a branding guy, I'm try, I can't really think of a brand that, that, that does this, which is sort of say, you know, it, it's it's in your face, but it's so subtle. Mm. Uh, you know, and, and this, this so you look at coins where they show representations of the profile of Marcus Agrippa. It's with this funny crown with the proud, and, and he's the only guy who has one, so that must therefore be him. And so by the time of his death, in was it, was it 12 BC 12, that he died? Yeah. So he was co-ruler, essentially, of Roman Empire. His daughter is married to August, uh, the other co-ruler, Augustus. His sons have been adopted as potential heirs to the throne. Can you summarise what you think is his legacy? What would you say is the legacy? Well, uh, well in, in, in simple terms, his legacy is actually large parts of the Julio-Claudian family. Yeah. Um, so, so the bloodline is, is partly his. So he may not have become like the, the commander-in-chief, but his yeah. blood is Jesus, DNA is shot through. It, um, so at, at some point around, I think it was, uh, I think, uh, crikey, I forgot what the dates were, uh, 17, 16, 15, 16, I forgot what mm. um, He allows his two sons by... His, his marriage to Julia, which is uh, the only daughter of Augustus. So imagine that, right? You're my best friend. You can marry my daughter. Yeah. <laughs> now, you know, in the modern day, that would kind of freak a lot of guys out, wouldn't it? But, but oh, this yeah, is, this that would be horrific. Right. Uh, well, you know, but and you have to... Yeah. Well, well, the, the, well, so, <laughs> well the, there are a couple of very good books about Julia uh, uh, out there. And, uh, you know, when, when you read her story, it's, it's kind of a sad one. Because oh. like like most Roman women, it, you're an object. You just get moved around. Yeah. Right. So so Julia, you're married to Tiberius, my 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 wife's. This is Augustus. My wife's Livia, uh, you know, has a son, and his name is uh, Tiberius Claudius Nero, and he has married um, the 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 daughter of uh, of, of uh, Agrippa. And oh, by the way, you need to divorce her now, and you need to marry my daughter. And and poor Tiberius says, "But I love, I love Vipsania. Tough. I needed to marry my guy." And in fact, as I as I write the story of uh, Tiberius, this is, I think is a, is a, is a crucial moment in time because uh, if the man is 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 head over heels in love with a woman and is told you can't see her anymore, I mean, I think this is, this this corrodes a man's soul. And um, in, in the case of uh, Marcus Agrippi, I think he was married three times and the last marriage was to Julia. It wasn't the best of marriages, it was purely a convenience, uh, yeah. but he actually had uh, three sons by her. Caius and Lucius were the first two. Uh, and the, the, the belief of the Roman world was that these were gonna inherit basically the, 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 we call it principate now, which is to say, yeah. not emperors, but we don't quite know what they were gonna be. They were gonna be successors somehow rather than be okay. regarded as that. Um, they were a disaster. I mean, they turned out to be spoilt brats. They were nothing like their <laughs> natural father. Um, but Caius, when he's out on a military expedition out in Parthia, kind of feels sick and doesn't want to play the game anymore and writes to his dad, I'd like to retire now. And you think, you're not even 30. How can you retire? Oh, my God. Uh, so, 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 so Augustus negotiated would come along. We need to talk about this. And so anyway, he dies on the way home. He oh, dies no. on the way home. Oh. And then his brother died a couple of years before. So, so this whole idea of the succession completely dies and ends. The other son, whose name, funny enough, is Agrippa, 
uh, is born after uh, Marcus Agrippa himself dies in 12 and uh, is called Agrippa Posthumus in, in the modern right. histories of that because yeah. he's posthumously born. Mm. Um, it, it also has a very tragic life and that's subject for all different podcasts as well. <laughs> so, so that line goes, in fact, what, what really is interesting is that the lines that succeed Agrippa are his daughters. So famously Agrippina uh, the elder, Agrippina the, uh, the, the, the younger, and it's through them and their children you get um, the, the, the people that, uh, the, the Germanicus and uh, all the way to Caius Caligula and, and, and all the way through. And, and it's just fascinating how that is. So, so that was one part of his legacy. I think the other part of his legacy is just really to take that world that they had grown up in, which was filled with war and uncertainty, and they stopped it. So when, when you, you, you sort of read some of the accounts, in the year that Augustus himself dies, which is 14 AD, there's this little cameo picture where he um, is riding on a, on a ship and he's going off uh, to take a villa at Capri, I think it is. And a, and a boat comes by and there are some people having a party and they go, oh, Augustus, oh, thanks to you. We're having the time of our life. You brought peace to the world. What a wonderful time we live in. And of course, it, is it made up? I don't know. But it's like this wonderful little kind of roll the credits moment where, you know, yeah. you think that I was born and brought up in war and now it's okay. I kind of yeah, fixed yeah. it for you guys. And it could not have happened had Augustus not had Agrippa. He couldn't have done it. He was not a commander. He, he, was, a, he was a sharp thinker. He was a strategist. But you can't make strategy work unless you've got a tactician who can actually yeah. do the job on the ground. And that yeah. was absolutely. So when he dies in 12, um, Augustus is bereft. I mean, they have this amazing state funeral where um, a story goes like this, that um, in um, 13, there's rumors of a rebellion happening in what we now think of uh, Croatia and Dalmatia, that's a area yeah. on the other side of the um, Adriatic. And um, the best general of the time is, of course, Marcus Agrippa. So Augustus says, can you do me one last favor? And uh, I go, yeah, okay, you know, I haven't, I haven't fought for a while, but sure, for you, I'll do it. Um, and he goes off, and of course, it's the middle of winter, and uh, even as he's arriving, news goes ahead, the story goes, that uh, the great Marcus Agrippa is coming. And the sides basically say, okay, okay, we'll, we'll stop our fighting. Yeah, we, this, could be, this could be really bad for us. We'll stop. And um, hardly as he arrived when I basically said, okay, well, I've, my job's done. I'm going to go back. So he goes back. And he falls sick. And he goes to his villa. Um, and he dies. His villa. Now, we don't know whether Augustus is in, in Rome or is in Athens. There's, there's one story he's in Athens. Saying, Wherever he is, he gets this message from an adjutant who you can imagine is breathless. That's just, I bring bad news. So, you know, yeah. tears, gnashing of teeth and so on, pulling the hair. And, and he goes back and, and they literally take the body all the way by road to uh, to Rome and they lay it in state and have this massive funeral. And um, the, the Augustus reads out this eulogy and we actually have a fragment of it, uh, which survives as a papyrus, I think, from Egypt. But basically he goes back and sort of said, look, I mean, people despised him. The people who, the, the people who think of themselves as being the best ones. And I'm here to tell you that this was the best man. Yeah. Right? He was the best example and he was my friend. And uh, it's a sort of like a, a beautiful little kind of like echo that, that resounds. Uh, and it's funny, it survives as this kind of moth-eaten piece of papyrus. But um, Augustus, the first thing he does after grieving is he chooses this guy Tiberius, remember the one I just mentioned? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. To be his right-hand man. Why? Because Tiberius is very much like Agrippa. He Aww. gets stuff done. Yeah. Right? And it's very clear that Augustus uh, needs a buddy guy. He, he yeah. needs somebody he can mm. turn to and say, I need a favor, can you do it? And, and somebody who'll say yes, not I mean, yeah, no, no. Agrippa never did that, from what we can work out. 
And uh, the legacy is the fact that, um, I, I think the legacy brilliantly is that, that, that name on the building. Because I'm hoping that people go up to the building and go, wow, that's a fantastic building. Who's Marcus Agrippa? Yeah. yeah. And then they get <laughs> to find out this, this amazing story. And then they buy I'll tell you what, I mean, the Pantheon's beautiful. That is possibly one of my favourite squares in Rome. When you sit in one of the restaurants at the back and have a coffee and look up at it. I mean, the now burger, I know. The burger bar. Did you, did you see where the street had actually literally fallen down? A hole appeared outside the building, yeah. Yeah, um, so, so what's amazing so, so again what you've got to imagine that if, if you took it in, in my book I have a map of Rome where I show the monuments and buildings that Agrippa built it's, it's amazing how many there are mm. you've got to remember that Rome was a pretty crappy city in those days um, and Julius Caesar really started the process of building the really impressive buildings there was no Colosseum there are a lot of the buildings that we know from um, the, the arches of uh, um, Severus and Constance. They, did, they, were, they were hundreds of years into the future. Yeah. So what yeah. uh, Julius Caesar started was this urban renewal program. And the idea is to straighten out the Tiber, to stop it flooding, and he was going to build huge big things. And a lot of the plans, I'm sure, that happened when, 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 when Augustus and Agrippa, they must have gone to his library or his, his, his big cupboard and sort of say, look, there's 50 plans here. What are we going to do with these? Well, that's a good plan to me. Let's build it. And, and they started building some of those things. And the, part of the reason why they're called Julia is partly because I'm sure because it's, it's, it's the family into which um, Augustus was inherited. But it's also a, it's an echo of the fact that the guy had the idea of Julius Caesar. So mm. Julius Caesar, I think, is the ghost in all of this story. That there's a story okay. that um, when, when Agrippa and um, Octavian were on a, on, a, on a mission with him to join him in Spain, um, they arrived too late. The war was already gone and he ships him back and he says, I need to go back to Rome and do some stuff for me. And uh, he comments, says, I like your friends. And so Julius Caesar kind of <laughs> gives the endorsement. <laughs> yeah, uh, what's interesting is there's, there's this group of about four or five people. One is called Stalgadienus and there's a guy I think called Lucius. We don't know his other name. And they also follow him. So there's this group of student kids, right, in, the, in their yeah. teens. And they end up in, in the Adriatic uh, city awaiting orders because Julius Caesar is going to take them on a big campaign to conquer Parthia. He doesn't make it because he gets assassinated. But what's interesting is that this is the group that uh, the young teenage Octavian has assembled. And of all of those people, the only one left at the end was Agrippa. And, uh, you know, for, for, for me, when, I, when I'm trying to sort of sum up this life, this great big arc, um, the, 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 the mystery remains as to why. And uh, you know, the, the only thing I can think of, and, it, and, and, and it's not a, not, not a good example at all because the personality involved, if, if you think about the adulation that the figure of Adolf Hitler had on some people that followed him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the most obvious example is Goebbels and Magda mm. Goebbels, his wife, yeah. uh, to the point where they adored him and they lived in the bunker. And yeah. when they discovered that things were going south very quickly, guess what they did? they poisoned their own children and shot themselves. Yeah. Mm. Um, and, and okay, that's an appalling parallel. No, but it's like that but, ultimate sacrifice yeah. for that person in a way, isn't it? Yeah, and, and I, there's probably a psychologist out there who's like, oh yes, that's uh, something complex. Uh, I, I don't know what it is. I, I just think in the end, in the case of Agrippa and, and his friend Augustus, it's this, it's this friendship born of a shared experience of mm. life that's been very tough and they relied on each other when the tough, times got really bad and they went some pretty really bad things where things looked like they weren't going to come together I mean, there was, there was, this is the amazing thing that we always think oh yeah he won the battle of Actia but he went and won you know this like that it was not at all obvious they would I mean if, if you read those things do you map them as a how in hell they win that uh, one famous historian basically dismissed Actium and said oh it's a secondary kind of battle I'm thinking 
Well, no, not really. How, what, how can you say that? Because they're thinking of much bigger ones and they're thinking of like, you know, Trafalgar and all those sorts of things. Mm. Like that, so, um, but no, I mean, you've got to remember these guys have not redone really it. Everybody's an amateur, right? They're all going at this. There's, there's no big plan that says, okay, right, A, A1 or 65. No, once they've discussed the plan with their generals and they've, this is how the battles are fought. They, they have a big conclave in a tent. And they'll say, well, here's the map, and we're going to try and do this and this and this and this. So do you know what your job is, Decimus? Yes. Do you know what your job is, Flavius? Yes. Okay, well, well, okay. Nine o'clock tomorrow then. Off they go. And, <laughs> and, and once they're out, that's it. And there's, a, there's a, a number of descriptions of the Battle of Actium, which are all kind of from later, but, but they create this impression of um, there is, there is the, there's the flagship boat, which Agrippa's on, so kind of people know where he is because they've got to take their bearings. But here's the thing. Once the ships start moving, you don't see that boat anymore because all you see is the boats around you in the middle and they're coming at you and there's flames and fire and all sorts of stuff later in the battle. But there's, an, there's a scene where apparently in a little boat, Octavian's bobbing up and down going around sort of saying, you know, everybody okay? Right, super, see you at the end of this, see you on the, on the other side. And, checking and, and, in. And <laughs> checking in. And yet the, the people who hated uh, Octavian basically said, ah, the guy fell seasick and he wasn't there anyway. <laughs> what do you believe, right? So, so there's all this propaganda yeah. and counter-propaganda but nobody, interesting, nobody ever gets and has a jab at Agrippa. They all say, yeah, he's the good guy. He, he, Aww, he, he, he was nice. the one. Uh, and, and I think at the end of all of this, um, one thing to point out is that Marcus, Marcus's full name was Marcus Whipsanius Agrippa. And oh. he decided consciously by, 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 by decision to lose his middle name. And there seems to be a suggestion that the Whipsani family wasn't either very good or they were, and I don't know, maybe he had a, an embarrassment with it. He always presented himself as Marcus Agrippa, M.A. And there's there's a, there's an account of a court case where they again remember I was saying that people belittled him. Yeah. That the the other side basically say, um, so we're, we're expecting a guy called Marcus Sanius Agrippa. Who are you again? <laughs> like like because yeah, so, so, they basically try and trip him up. Yeah. And, and and this 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 guy you can imagine just says. Phew. <laughs> Yeah. And, and just gets I mean, on it, you know. And my record, my record speaks for itself. Yeah, exactly. uh, and surely it did. Absolutely. Wow. God, he sounds like he's got the most. What a guy. Yeah, a fantastic legacy. What a legacy to have. What, a, <laughs> what a nice, what a nice little um, finishing point there to talk about it. Because we do want our listeners to know a bit more about you, not just your book, but they will oh, really okay. know about the man behind the book. So, what got oh. you into history? What what started? Oh, crikey. Um, well, so, so I went to a school in the UK, uh, Cardiff, I'm a Welsh guy, and uh, I was lucky enough to have a brilliant Latin teacher whose name was Ira Lewis, um, who sadly died a few years ago, and I wish I had because I wanted to tell her what I'd done in the meantime. Oh. So I learned Latin. There's a thing called uh, the Cambridge Latin Project, yeah. um, and, and I would pour through these orange jacketed things, Caecilius est in horpo, you know, <laughs> Clemens est corpus, or whatever it was. And I would always find myself reading the back, the history bit. Yeah. And it got to like number eight, which was Gladiatore, Zina Arena. And I would yeah. think, oh, great, this is weird. And then I watched the film, the famous uh, Spartacus with uh, Kirk Douglas. And I thought, <laughs> I think this is pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. And, and it just went on from there. And I was lucky that uh, I had parents who indulged my uh, interest. And in, uh, nearby Cardiff is Carleon and Carwent and the brilliant museum, the National Museum of Wales, who've got a fantastic uh, collection of things. And I was lucky I was able to go there. And then gradually over the years, I, I was able to travel, go different places, uh, saw all the places, many of which are in, in the books I write about. And yeah. by the way, for me, that's the fun part, doing the field research and actually going there, meeting with experts and talking yeah. with them. Uh, and, and, and understanding how history is made is part of the fun. Mm. The point when I was um, faced with the decision, what I'm going to do. So I, I decided to go to university 
in Birmingham, the University of Aston. Oh. Um, and they had a very well-known management school. Yeah. And I just thought, you know what? I've got to be real. I've got to be practical. So I actually did a degree with their management school and then got a job with a big multinational, which has served me greatly. I did a career pivot uh, several years ago and uh, got into helping startups. So I now work with startups. And that's fun because uh, I, I love the world of technology and, and how people are using technology in a lot of ways to, to help the world and help uh, make things a better place. Uh, and I work with people in biotechnology and medtech yeah. and all sorts of things. Um, but I've never, ever lost my interest in the ancient world. So, I, so uh, back in, I think it was 2016, I went to the University of Reading to give a presentation about Germanicus, my other favorite person. Yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> bless them, they thought I was from the University of Texas. I never told them I was that. They, they, they got this idea from somewhere. Um, all I said was, I'm from Austin, Texas, and I'm going to be in Reading. You know, can I come by? And they said, yes. And they, and they said, well, you've got any career advice for, for, for our students. And they were archaeology and classics and philology. And, and I had to sort of dig deep and say, well, look, um, the, the classes that you're learning will teach you how to think and be critical about things that you see and read and, and, and really uh, examine stuff that's presented to you. And those are, mm. those are fantastic skill sets. And a lot of you will never have careers in classics and archaeology and curators of museums. In fact, the tragedy is there's all this talent that never actually gets applied in those areas. But I can tell those people that I've worked with people who've done philosophy and, also, and they work in manufacturing and logistics supply chains and so on. And because they've had those skill sets, they inject a whole different perspective. So uh, that, yeah, I was lucky that I um, came from a very broad based education and I, I continue to have my fascination with this civilization of the ancient Romans. Um, I joined a reenactment group called the Irma Street Guard, which uh, I have to say is still the preeminent one. Apologies to all the others, I think it's still the best one in the world. Um, which was a great place to, to learn how Roman armor was made and worked and, and to feel it, wear it, and understand how it smells when you get hot on a hot summer's day. And, you know, how, and, and to really begin to understand the mechanics of Roman discipline and army and those sorts of things uh, and how your feet hurt <laughs> and so on and getting sunstroke in the south of uh, France. But uh, those, those things helped me with my writing. I started writing for their magazine called Extricatus, which is the army. Um, what I didn't realize is I could have actually been writing all those years ago, but it, you know, duh, the duh moment came to me about 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, I started writing a novel. I was compelled to write a novel uh, about the early years of the Roman conquest of Germany, Germania. And I, I wrote this tome and I, and I didn't like how it ended because it didn't answer the question I set out. Why did this man, uh, Milo of Gambri, who was a uh, Germanic chief, um, it goes on this mission and the Roman Empire responds in kind. I mean, it doesn't normally do this because the Romans had no interest at all in Germania. Everything over the other side of the Rhine would keep it with Rhine. But this Milo was the trigger. And uh, the, the, the upshot of all this was that, um, that the Romans go after this guy. And I wrote this novel. And at the end of it, I still didn't understand why he did what he did. And, and, and the, the, the art, I think, the novelist is to get into the head of a character and inhabit it and, and come up with motives and things, you know, and drives and whatnot. Yeah. And then when the reader reads it, the guy believed the character. Well, I didn't believe in my character. But what I was really intrigued was all the other characters in the story. And, and, I, and I said, I need to know about, more about Nero Claudius Drusus. Where's the book about Nero Claudius Drusus? Well, there wasn't one. Well, I had so many notes. I approached a couple of publishers, including Planet of the Sword, the, the, my first one. And they said, yeah, it sounds interesting. Write the book. They gave me an agreement. And oh, wow. uh, I, I wrote it, and it was it was my first book. I wrote blogs at the same time, and 
again, we could talk about him on another occasion. Nero Claudius Drus is a young whippersnapper, daring do hero figure. Um, and I learned a lot about that. And then I sat down with my commissioning editor, Phil Sidnall, who brilliantly agreed to meet me in the British uh, Museum. They have a restaurant above the old British Library, you know, that, that, that central courtyard, the Lorraine building. At top, that's a restaurant. Mm-hmm. It's got like t- t- tents on the top. And we sat there, he said, so what are you going to do now? And I said, well, uh, ooh, um, well, Nero Claudius Drusus had a son called Germanicus. Okay, write me a proposal, we'll work on that one. And I wrote that book. And then I wrote the Marcus Agrippa book. And then I wrote the Augustus at War book, because I wanted to you know, put all these generals who never get yeah. told the story. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to try and understand how can a second rate general still double the size of the empire and, and fix this broken political system and make it the thing that is, which goes on for another almost a thousand years but in the west goes on for another 400 years and the book that i'm now working on is tiberius and that's pretty much how the series will end because i will have written the whole people that interest me and all the people who i think have really not been told properly yeah um and in the meantime i still help out founders and startups and all this and it's interesting that the lessons i've learned about management and leadership people dealing with tough choices uh and i have to tell you if you work with founders of companies who were on a mission to do what the hell again, whether it's uh, software or a new piece of uh, hardware or chemistry or something like that. Or look at all the people on the vaccine trail, right? A lot of those. Yeah. So um, some of those people are startups and they're all on a mission that they're going to build vaccine. And they're, they're working all hours that they, 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 they deal with upsets and crises and, 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 and things that don't work and they run out of money. You know, is it, those are the things, ironically, that inform me when I write my books. Because if mm. all those things I've just evoked were the same things that a guy called uh, Cass Octavius Turinus and Marcus Agrippa had to face when they were faced back in 44 BC, when they're in their teens, what are we going to do to make this right then, Marcus? And they say, well, I think we should go back to Rome and get some stuff done. And they, oh, and, and Octavia says, we're going to do this. And Agrippa says, okay, I'm with you. Whatever you decide, I'm going to go, I'll go okay. together. Um, so, so, so all those things are great. And I, and I suggest to people is have a hobby, something something different than your work, because mm. uh, I, I find it immensely fulfilling. I mean, my, my bookshelf's behind me and all around me. And this is That's a very impressive book bookshelf you've got there, I must say. <laughs> well, it wraps around the corner. And then I, these are just my ancient classical text. I have a whole oh story unit full of them. Um, I'm, I'm, somebody put a meme up yesterday on Facebook, which was uh, like a, a car going down a motorway and it's got the sign saying, books you haven't read in your book collection, <laughs> book sale and the car's veering <laughs> off, oh, yeah, book sale. So That's many me. historians know that. <laughs> I think that, yeah, you're not the only one, I'm afraid. Yeah, well, you know, the way I read books is whenever I need to know an answer, I dive into the book or I go find the book. And I have to say, by the way, uh, JSTOR, um, yeah. jsor.org if, if your listeners um, have a library public library ticket they probably can actually access jsor free mm-hmm. I, I can't do my research without that I can, I can do keyword searches and I find this amazing uh, archive of uh, a really wonderful uh, scholastic and academic research and then there's also academia.edu yeah. where a lot of academics put their work out there free and I, and I take my head I, I sleep them by the way in the forward to my most recent book um, because the, the great thing about everybody has an angle that they can bring, yeah. right? Mm. So, so my angle is is born of an experience of working for uh, commercial operations. So I understand how leaders work in different situations and how organisations, when they are designed well, function, and the ones that don't function well, probably because there's leadership issues and other resource issues. Um, and, and I think they go a long way to explain why the ancient world worked the way it did. Mm. Um, and uh, 
you, you, you can't really, I think, uh, look at the ancient world without bringing your perspective on it. And mm. everybody's is different. When, when I look at uh, comments on Facebook, it's amazing how people get really, really, you know, uh, worked up about the thing the that they, they, you know, and, and I have to, I, I want to, I, I, I spent too many hours on if I said, can I just give you a different perspective? I, I have to be careful about that. But uh, people have to understand how history is made. And uh, I'm not going to talk about that now, but I think it's, it's a fascinating subject. Uh, uh, just to understand that the things you take for granted as being history are themselves made up of like a, like a layer of cake yeah. of other people's perspectives, yeah. archaeology and numismatics and sculpture and all this sort of stuff. I mean, there's some, the great thing, we, we live in a magnificent age where you can go on YouTube and you can find Mary uh, Beard talking about identifying or misidentifying ancient uh, sculptures. And she's got a series of lectures on there where she talks about, um, you know, is, is this Julius Caesar's head or is this Julius Caesar's head? I mean, how do we know? Yeah. And the answer is, we don't. <laughs> and you'll get people who get really, really riled up on, on Facebook and say, well, of course that's Julius Caesar. And it's like, well, how do you know? It doesn't say. Yeah. Um, and, and, and all this sort of stuff. And, and, and when, when you find, as I do, that academics spend a lot of time actually nitpicking another academic's papers, uh, you know, that's how knowledge is made, right? It's people underpinning and ripping apart and then say, okay, can we agree on those things? We don't know about those things. Let's go find answers to those things we don't yeah. know. So I think you know something about me now. <laughs> I'm passionate, yeah. I'm passionate and meticulous. No, your passion for oh, I'm loving it. wonderful to be. Yeah. yeah. And, and I just hope that people get, so ultimate history is about people, right? Um, so so um, the, the tragedy about our time right now, I mean, you, you are talking about Zoom and you're even in Britain and you're separated by, I don't know what, how many miles. Mm -hmm. um, but but you know the, the, the fact is we are social right we should be mm. together doing things yeah. and the ancient world is 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 to me like all parts of history the struggles and the joys and the frustrations and the achievements of people mm. right and, and and what's amazing to me is that some of the most popular programs that in in, in british tv were things like time team yeah. and, and the, the great things that came out of that when they got villages to go and sort of dig in their backyard and find stuff and then people suddenly realize i've got history in my own garden and by the way, in your family tree, go and find out about grandpa and great grandpa and find out what their history was. Yeah. Um, and, and, and if you can mobilize that uh, curiosity, mm. and, and for me, the fun is actually funny about dead people. Uh, one, of my, one of my long uh, favorite people, Sonia St. James died. And before she, before she died, she said, would I, would I basically write a sort of eulogy? And I said, yeah, I know how to write about dead people. That should be quite easy. Um, she was very matter of fact, by the way, uh, <laughs> about death and dying. And she taught me a lot. But the thing is, we shouldn't forget the histories of the living too, right? So if you've yeah. got family members who um, know about the Second World War, talk to them about yes. it. If they want to tell the stories, hear their stories, because you know what? I mean, as we saw at the Cenotaph, I watched on Sky News, it was some ungodly early hour, and they had that small group of people who were laying wreaths. Mm -hmm. And normally there's like thousands of them this year. They had to have like about 20 because of the distancing. Yeah. Um, but, but mortality, also mortality. And all of these people come from all aspects of British life, and, uh, you know, they were in their teens when they were called up or they volunteered um, and, and they gave their time and service and many gave their lives. And, uh, you know, what, what, to, to learn about, about their stories is, is every bit as important as, about, as Marcus Agrippa because it's, it's, it's a human story. That, that's kind of yeah. my, my perspective. That's it. I think that's yeah, what history yeah. is. Yeah. Lots of human histories. Well, people, uh, I think, tend to get swept away by, and historians are really bad about this, they'll, they'll focus on the famous, the greats, and I get a little bit sort of frustrated by the fact of, oh, another book about Napoleon. Oh, another book about Cleopatra. Oh, great. Um, uh, for, okay, but that opens the door for me, right? Because I write about people who aren't so well known. So, 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 so Germanicus, I was the first person to write a book about Germanicus, I think, in English, maybe ever. 
Mm -hmm. my, my, my book about Marcus Agrippa was the first in almost 90 years in English. There were some in other languages, but mine yeah. was the first in 90. And again, what a wonderful opportunity. And I wrote that in my foreword. I sort of said, I mean, why me? I'm, I'm just so lucky. And in the case of uh, Nero Claudius Drusus, the last person to write about Nero Claudius Drusus uh, was actually Augustus. He wrote a memoir, he sort of things I remember about. He was very fond of his stepson. And uh, he died tragically at 29 doing with a great, great stellar career in front of him. And he died, luckily just find out about that. Um, but the fact that, uh, you know, nobody's written about this guy in English, I thought, that's gotta be an opportunity. And, yeah. uh, you know, so I, I, I keep sort of, so, so my new book is about Barkoffer, who's a, is a rebel who um, takes on Hadrian and actually wins for three and a half years. Oh, wow. Amazing story, absolutely amazing story. Well, we'll make sure to have you on for next time. Oh, please do, Lots yeah. Let's come in. But well, before, oh god, I was gonna say before we do that, we want to do our kind of other final quick personal round with you, mm. which we do with all of our guests, and kind of just bring out. So it's just your first answers to yep. any of these. Whatever questions. springs to mind straight yeah, away. First answer. Oh dear, that could be very embarrassing. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. We've had some great ones so far. So, <laughs> so no pressure. First initial answer, and then we'll go through. It's only four questions. Don't you worry. Right. So the first one is: Who is your favourite historical figure in all of history? I think the man we talked about, Marcus Agrippa, I'd uh, love to death. It has to be, doesn't it? <laughs> okay, well then flipping it on its head, who's your least favourite historical figure? The, the other man I mentioned, Adolf Hitler. <laughs> yeah. A completely worthless waste of space. Yes. <laughs> um, so if you were going to go on a road trip, who, which three people from history would you have with you in your car? Well, the three people I'd have, I'd have, guess who? I'm going to be very boring. I'm going to have Marcus Agrippa because I think he'd have some great plans and ideas. I take Augustus because I just have so many questions. That's why did you do? And the other one, this will surprise us, Pliny the Elder. Pliny the Elder wrote the, the natural history, like yeah. the ancient world's encyclopedia. I just wrote an article about it in, uh, in, in Ancient History magazine. What a really fascinating man. What's great about Pliny the Elder? He tells really good stories. Ah. So you know, he'd be on the road and everything would be getting boring and quiet and Augustus would be asleep and uh, Griffin would be reading his book. Uh, and, and I'd say, hey, please, tell us a story. Like, oh, well, I got another story. Did you know the one about? And, and it'd be great. And it'll fly. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> okay, well, then your final question. What has been the best moment of your career so far? Oh, dear, I'm going to be very First thing that comes there. to your mind. First thing. Meeting my partner. And I'll say no more than that. Oh, who, who, who is who is who is uh, my partner of 30 years and, and is is in the UK and I oh, can't get there. Well, I hope you're reunited soon. Each other. Oh, well, yeah, fingers crossed. Well, on that kind of sad note, but we will. <laughs> yeah, a lovely note. <laughs> we, we, we FaceTime every night and we, we message and so, you know, technology, plug for technology. Um, we be able to say that. Exactly. We're very blessed in this day and age, aren't we? Yeah. So, yeah. That, and yeah. I hope you guys can get reunited soon. Thank you so much for talking to us today. This has been brilliant. Yeah, I had fun. And I didn't leave my office. <laughs> it's, it's so easy, isn't it? It's so easy. <laughs> that was the amazing Lindsay Powell talking to us about his book, Marcus Agrippa. Next week, we will be joined by a PhD student for one of our monthly PhD chats. In the meantime, don't forget to like, share, retweet and follow and get in touch with us for our Twitter account, at Kaki Malaki. Until next time, I'm Olivia Smith. And I'm Phoebe Staho. Thanks for listening. This is Kaki Milaki signing off.